Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the seventh week of our series, Harsh Truths. This message comes from Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, through Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us, and without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. Now, we are looking at the Gospel of Matthew in this section where where Jesus is giving us some of these harsh truths, these things that are hard to understand or hard to believe. And, and we're looking this morning at a passage in Matthew 20 primarily. And, and it's a passage of a parable where, where we read it and it's kind of an unusual, it's hard to, it's actually just in Matthew. It's the only place it's recorded in the gospels. And, and it's one of those parables like, what, what is he saying? It's maybe a little hard to understand, but once you unpack it, say you're gonna see that it's got an incredible and very practical meaning. And um, we're going to actually start at the last verse of chapter 19. I'll explain why in a few minutes. But if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew 19, 30, and to, to verses uh, through, through uh, the early part of chapter 20. Let me begin by reading this passage. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going about, about the, out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give to you. And, about, he, and so they went, and going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said, you too go into the vineyard. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to this foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those he hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. And when those he hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And he replied to one of them, friend, am I doing you no, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me or do you begrudge my generosity? And so the last will be first and the first last. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you again for the privilege that we have to come and to study your word. Thank you for the things that you're teaching me through this. And I pray now that you would speak through me and in spite of me. Father, help us to hear what your spirit would have for each one of us. Father, to not only understand, but to understand how to apply into our own lives what you want to say to our hearts. I pray that you would speak, that you would allow us to be open to hear. I pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I have a grandson who's now approaching his first birthday, and he's at that stage where he's learning new things pretty much every week. Uh, one of the things he's learning now is he's learning how to say some of those first words. I mean, we were over at the house even yesterday, and he's looking at a fan, and he's making a noise every time he looks at it. And, and we like to think he's really smart, and he has a word for that fan, and he's already speaking. I, I don't know if he's really that smart, but I like to think that he is. Uh, but I do know that he's probably right on the cusp of learning one word that all children learn within their first 10 words. And when they learn it, it quickly becomes their favorite word. And that's the word, no. 
I mean, they all learn it, and it's, they all say it. I, I think about when our first one was, was born. I mean, she quickly learned it, and she said it all the time. So, so we said, okay, we're going to exclude that. We're going to, when our second one's born, we're going we're gonna to not ever say the word no in our house. They're never going to learn it from us. And, and, uh, but the fact of the matter is somehow she picked it up. And our third and our fourth, they picked it up. And they not only learned it, but they said it with great passion. And so they would look at us and say, no. And I'd look at Sandy, and I said, did you teach her that? You know, I, I didn't say no. It's how did she learn it? And I thought we weren't going to teach them no. But yet somehow they learned it. And, and there's certain things like that you just never have to teach your kids. They learn it on their own. Uh, you, can't te- you can't help them but learn how to say no. There are other words and phrases that are similar. Uh, another phrase that kids naturally learn is they say, that's not fair. Um, all right, anybody with kids or grandkids? Uh, how many of you had kids that would say that all the time? Is there anybody that has kids that didn't say that? Okay, how many of we've all had kids that say it. How many of you actually tried to teach your kids that? I mean, none of us set out to teach that, those words, or let alone that idea, but yet they all learned it. And they not only learn it, but they insist on it all the time. That's not fair. There's an inborn sense of justice. And, and when they feel like at times that, that things aren't right, you know, they're going to let you know. That's not fair, because we expect a world where things are just and where it's fair. It makes us feel like things are in order and things are right. It gives us a sense of control and peace. And, and it's frustrating for our kids when they look at life and it just doesn't seem to be fitting according to the rules. But I don't think it's just kids that struggle with that. We all struggle with it as well. As parents, we may not say it in those terms, but how often have we felt like, well, that's not right, that's not fair, life isn't fair, and we get disappointed and we get frustrated. In fact, you know, as, as uh, parents, you know, we have our kids with the, we've all taught them like certain things, not only they say, but certain things that we say. And if you were to ask my kids, you know, what are five things that your dad would say to you? I mean, one of the things that they would say is life isn't fair. It's not fair. Well, life isn't fair, right? It should be fair. And they would argue, well, the fact of the matter is life isn't fair. We live in a world where there's sin and where there's fallenness and where there's brokenness. And it doesn't always work the way that we're expecting it to be. And again, if we understand that, life actually becomes less frustrating. But how about a relationship with God? How about on spiritual realm? Do we expect God to be fair? And, and because we expect God to be fair, one of the things that we struggle with is Man, it's frustrating at times when God doesn't seem to be working in accordance with what we'd expect, with what, with what we think is right and what's fair. And, and we're going to see that Jesus addresses that issue head on here. I mean, we struggle with this, and Jesus is looking at it and saying, hey, I understand that. And he invites us into the struggle, and he gives us truth to help us understand it. And the fact is that all of us have at times cried out in prayer and said, God, why are you letting this to happen to me? Why, why is it happening to that other person? God, you know, why aren't you setting things right? Why, why are, you know, this person's doing wrong and they seem to be getting away with it. And God, it isn't fair. And if that question has ever come up in your heart, then this passage is for you. Now, the parable is in chapter 20, but we're going to start by looking at the end of 19. And here's why. It's natural to think, when we look at a chapter break, that, that of course, well, that means it's a new idea, a new story, it's a break. Well, actually, the, the chapter breaks weren't part of the original Bible. They were added hundreds of years later. It helps us navigate, but sometimes it creates an image of a break when there shouldn't be one. Usually, it's a logical place, but in this case, actually, to understand this parable in chapter 20, 
you have to go back and understand chapter 19. And it's actually obvious in the verses that we just read. See, because we read, we started in verse 30 of chapter 19, which is the very end of the story in chapter 19. And here you have Jesus saying, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And then we go to the end of the parable and Jesus says almost the exact same thing. It just reverses the order. And so the last will be first and the first last. And so very clearly Jesus is trying to tie these ideas together. Now, what are they? So last week we looked at the story at the end of 19. It's the story often referred to as the young rich ruler. And, uh, and it's a story of this man who comes to Jesus and, and, it's, and it's revealing something of our natural inclination to try to relate to God in contractual terms. You see, he's coming and he's, he's a good moral man. He's, he's a good moral man that's, that's studying the Bible, that's trying to keep the rules, that's trying to obey the commandments. He was a leader probably in his local synagogue. So the people in his community looked at him and they respected his morality, his religion. And he was trying to live by the rules, the spirit of religion. And yet, even there, he knows that something might be wrong. Because what does he do in coming to Jesus? He basically comes and he asks him, you know, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Okay, Jesus, I'm trying hard, but am I missing something? Because if it's all about, you know, religion, it's about rules, how do we ever know we've done enough? And what you see here is the spirit of religion, which is always asking, what must I do? And, and see, he's seeing God through this prism of religion in terms of rules to keep. And the idea that a relationship with God and the rewards with God are something that are to be earned. It's a contractual relationship. Meaning, okay, what I do is that I do the things that God demands. And if I do my part, then God owes me in response. Now, the problem is this question, what must I do? And the whole concept of this contractual relationship is all wrong. Because the Bible teaches there's nothing we can do to earn eternal life. If there was anything, Jesus wouldn't need it, needed to have come to die on the cross. The message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to do what we could never do. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. He earned God's reward, and then he took our punishment at the cross. He took the punishment for the sins that we deserved. Now, the Bible teaches then, to, in order to obtain eternal life, eternal life, we have to admit that there's nothing we can do and we have to give up control of our lives and, and ask Jesus to do for us what we could never do on our own behalf. We have to admit that all our riches, all our good deeds, all our efforts, all our religion is insufficient and we have to accept that we need God and ask him by grace to forgive us. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. So we saw last week in Matthew 19, and look what he says in verse 24. He has this cryptic statement. He talks about, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And he's basically saying, you know, I have a needle, a camel, the smallest opening, the biggest animal. That's impossible. It's not hard. It's something that's totally impossible. And his whole point is that we couldn't earn our salvation. And the disciples got it. And then they said, well, who can be saved? You know, if it's that impossible, I might not be a camel, but a person can't get through the eye of a needle. And Jesus responds to them and says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And he's basically saying, it's impossible for you to do it, but if you understand that, you understand that God makes a righteousness available through us, not by what you've done, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you've never asked Christ to forgive your sins, we invite you to do that. That's the message of the gospel. It's not about religion. It's not about performance. It's about accepting the free gift of God's grace. But there's a challenge even for those of us who have done that. 
See, the challenge is that even if we have accepted Christ and we understand it's not about me, that we have the spirit of religion, of performance that's so deeply ingrained in our hearts that we still tend to fall back into aspects of this contractual relationship with God. Even as a believer, what we do is we, we try to mix our performance with God's grace. Well, I'm trusting in God's grace, but then I'm also doing. Even for those who have followed Christ and who trust him, there's this natural tendency to fall back into a works mentality, a contract mentality where we've done good and we expect reward because of what we've done. In fact, we see it at the end of here in chapter 19. We see Peter's response in verse 27 where Peter basically comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you know, okay, well, we've left everything. Well, Jesus, we've believed in you and we're following you, but we've also left everything and, and what do we get? You know, what, what reward do we get for this? Basically, you know, we've performed and you see Peter mixing grace with performance. But the whole thing is it's all about grace. Well, let me even show you something from Matthew 19, which is a little easy to miss, but, but it's, it's a, it teaches this idea. So when the, when the young rich ruler comes to Jesus, he asks him, he says, he says, teacher, what good deed must I have to, uh, to or must I do to have eternal life? What must I do in a sense to earn? He's saying, how do I perform? And look at what Jesus says in response, verse 29. For everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Here's what I want you to notice. He wanted the young rich ruler, what must I do to earn it? And Jesus comes back and says, no, you can't earn it, you inherit it. What do you do to inherit anything? You can't. Inheritance isn't earned in any way. It's a gift of a relationship because you have a relationship that's freely given as a result of that relationship. Well, how do we have the relationship? Do we earn it? Well, no, that's grace. Look what John 1 says. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. By faith in Jesus Christ, by admitting our need, we are then adopted into that relationship. And so the gospel is we stop trying to earn our way in and we admit our failure and we accept his free gift of grace through adoption. But again, the problem is once we've gotten that, we still are gonna try to fall back into performance. And as we look at this parable now in chapter 20, that's the context. The context is he's coming out of this young ruler talking about what must I do? And then, and then you have Peter saying, okay, well, we're, well, we believe, but we're still doing and what reward do I get? And he says, okay, that's what I'm trying to teach you. And he illustrates that point through this parable. And it's something that we all struggle with. Well, let's look at the parable, Matthew 20, verse one. Jesus begins the parable by telling us, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for the vineyard. Again, this is not a work situation that's common in our day. It would have been very common in that day. Um, what would happen is you'd have a lot of people that didn't have regular employment. They were day laborers. And so they, would, they didn't have a regular employer. They would go out each day and they would go to a set place and they would hang around. And people that needed work would go to that place and they would say, I need five laborers. I need this many people. And they would go and, and work for the day. And uh, that was, again, very, very no normal. And so that's what's happening. And so Jesus continues, verse two, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. Now what's important to notice here is it says the master agreed to pay the workers a denarius for a day's wage. A denarius was the standard age wage for, for back then. It was straightforward, it's fair, everybody's happy. And even in that, you've got to remember that all the people that went out to get work that day, there wasn't a guarantee of work. 
it was possible that they could sit out all day waiting for someone to hire them. They never get hired. So when someone comes and says, hey, we're going to hire you, we're going to pay you a fair day's wage, that's a blessing. When this guy comes, they, they walk into the vineyard thinking, man, this is a great day. We're happy to be hired with a promise of a denarius at the end of the day. Now keep that in mind. We go to verse 3. Then Jesus continues the story saying, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. This is the master. And so, you know, they measure their day. It's a 12-hour workday starting at 6 a.m. and be a 12-hour day to 6 p.m. So the first ones, he went out at 6 a.m. And, uh, and about three hours later, the third hour, 9 a.m., he goes and he finds some other people and he goes to hire them. And we read in verse four, where, uh, after finding them, I'd always says, go into the vineyard too and whatever is right, I will give you. Here's what I want you to notice. The first one, he agreed on a denarius. They had a contract. You do this, I'll pay you that. Here, he hires these later ones and there is no contract. He just says, whatever is right, I'll pay you. Trust me, I'll take care of you at the end of the day. I'll take care of you and trust my character. Continues in verse five. And so they went and going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. So he goes out again at noon, he hires another group. He goes at 3 p.m., he hires another group. Then finally, we read in verse six, uh, about the 11th hour, about 5 p.m., he went out and find others standing there and he said to them, why do you stand here idle? And, he, and they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, go into the vineyard too. And again, with all these other people, there's no contract. He doesn't agree to pay a certain amount. He just says, trust me, I'll take care of you at the end of the day. And they believe the promise and the character of the master. Now that's where we pick up in verse eight. We read, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those were hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Now, again, that's understandable. They're looking at the, there and they're saying, man, they're getting an hour. You know, they worked an hour. We worked 12 times as long as they did. If they're getting a denarius for that, what are we going to get? And so they thought they would get more. But Jesus said, but each of them also received denarius. Verse 11, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Again, so here's the picture. The master lines everybody up and he puts the people that were hired most recently at the front of the line, the people at the end, and, and he opens up the bag of coins and he starts going and saying, okay, well, okay, well, you, you, know, you just got here an hour ago. Here's a denarius. Here's a denarius for you. Here's a denarius for, he, for you. And the guys at the end, they're watching this and they're thinking, man, this guy's really generous. And if these guys only worked an hour and they're getting a denarius, what are we gonna get? And so he continues going down to the end of the line and finally he comes to the guys that have been there 12 hours and here's a denarius for you and here's a denarius for you. And, and they're getting a denarius and they're, they're saying, wait a second, wait, that's not fair. That's not right. You know, we've been working here all day. We deserve more because we worked harder than these guys. And so there's a crisis. In verse 13, Jesus continues. The master replied, friend, am I, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do with what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And they're listening. And I think the people in the crowd, they're putting themselves in the place of these people that have been working 12 hours. And they're like, yeah, I kind of do begrudge your generosity. I mean, yeah, it bothers me. Why? Because, because I want what's fair. I want what's justice. I, we worked harder. We deserve more. And I want to get what I deserve. And I think as people are thinking that, I think that's where probably Jesus 
kind of gives a little smile and says, I know what you're thinking. Do you really want what you deserve? Do you really want justice? You see, the question we have to ask, do we really want God to be fair? Is that what we want? Do you want a relationship where God gives you what you deserve? You know, I mentioned earlier, um, you know, our kids uh, would argue, you know, they, they picked up, it's not fair, and they would argue, they would let us know. And, and it's interesting, they would always know when they felt they were, it wasn't fair when they were at the losing side, you know, so, so let's say if we have them do dishes, and, and, you know, one night it was, oh, we grilled, and there weren't many dishes, and the next night, you know, you know, Sandy cooked a big meal, and they got, whoever's doing dishes has all these pot and pans, they'd come back, it's not fair, you know, yesterday they got to clean, and it was a small thing, and it's not fair, and or, you know, they got a bigger gift or they got a bigger piece than I did. It's not fair. And we've all heard that, right? It's amazing that my kids never come back on the other side and say, it's not fair. Last night they had big dishes to clean and tonight I just have a few. It's not fair. I got a bigger present than they did. I mean, they never talk about that. It's just always only when we see ourselves as the losing end. And is that true in our relationship with God? I, you know, I think about even uh, as, a, as a parent, one interaction I had with one of my kids and seldom do you have a time where you like win an argument with your child. And this was one of those times, um, you know, my kids was arguing, one, one was arguing that something was fair. And I, you know, I gave her the usual response, you know, well, life isn't fair, you know, too bad. And, and she turned to me and said, thank you for the wisdom, dad. I needed to know. She didn't really say they, they hated when I said that, you know, you know, but life isn't fair. But then she, you could tell that she got this counter argument. She had this thought in her head and she just got this smile. And she said, yes, I know that life isn't fair, but God is fair. And if you want to be like God, then you've got to be fair. And she's like, okay, I got you over the, the barrel. You know, you're a pastor and you want to be modeling God here. And, and so how are you going to answer that? You know, it's kind of like that. She just knew she had me. And that was one of those cases where you just sensed that, okay, God gave me the right answer. And, and so I looked at her and I said, um, you know what? God isn't fair. And I'm thankful for that. Because if God was fair, we'd all be in hell right now. If God gave me what I deserved, if God gave you what you deserved, do you really want what you deserve before God? I don't. God isn't fair. God relates to us in grace. And, and she sat there and thought of trying to argue and then just turned and walked away. I don't think she ever said life isn't fair again. I mean, it's kind of like that was a flat out win. And, um, and the fact is that the Bible is clear that God isn't fair. Our relationship with God isn't based on fairness. And I'm thankful. We should all be thankful for that. Because if we got what we deserve, what's the Bible say? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What I earn, what we all deserve because we're sinners is death, is God's punishment. That's what I deserve is eternity in hell. And anything more than death and separation from God in hell is only by God's grace and mercy. What we deserve is God's punishment. The wages of sin is death. But according to the Bible, but Jesus came and lived the perfect life and he earned God's reward. And yet, instead of taking that, he took our sin and he took our death and on faith, he gives us his righteousness. He took what we deserve and he gives us what he deserved. And when we understand that as a follower of Christ, well, we're gonna stop talking about what we deserve because we're gonna realize that I don't want a relationship with God that's all about what I deserve and here's how I perform. I want, in a sense, going back to the parable, I want the relationship with the other guys that were hired and it wasn't a contract, it was just say, trust me. Go out and work and trust me, I'll take care of you at the end. See, the parable was all about the context, that's the key. 
And the context is in response to this young rich ruler that basically is coming and saying, it's a contractual relationship with God. What must I do? How do I earn God's blessings? And God's like, no, you're all wrong. And, and then it's Peter who comes back and says, well, I know I'm forgiven by grace, but yet this is what I've done. And what do I get? Because what I've done, I'm mixing performance and grace. And, and he says, no, you don't want to contractual relationship. If you do, he ends the parable of verse 16, the last will be first and the first will be last. If, if you think that you want to be first and you're trying to earn your way into, into, into reward, you're going to end up last. And it's people that are last and that are just trusting that God's going to take care of them. They're the ones that are going to discover what's true, that's, um, you know, that what, what it means to live in God's blessing. See, I think a ton of our spiritual problems and our spiritual unrest comes from having this contractual relationship with God mentality that, that we believe at the end of the day that God owes us something and, and we're frustrated because God isn't delivering. And even as believers, we can mix our performance in with God's grace. And we all struggle with this. You know, even at the end of the service today, you know, I was talking with somebody and and, and she said, man, I'm struggling with that. And she's just saying, yeah, I just, I just realized, I mean, there are people that are, bad things that happen. God, why have you allowed the bad things to happen to me? And there are people that, that have done me wrong and they're not suffering. And God, it's not fair. And, and she's struggling. We all struggle with this. So what are some signs that we're struggling with it? What are some indications, some, some hints that this could be something that, that's hiding in our heart? And with each one, I'm going to give you three signs. And with each one, I'm also going to give you a question. And this is kind of like a self-evaluation question to ask yourself to see that if at least in part, this might be an issue. Number one, sign or symptom that we're relating to God, at least in part contractually, is a spirit of bitterness. I mean, we see this here in, in the parable. You have these, these workers, they worked all day and suddenly they're really bitter because these other guys are getting more, you know, as much as, as, as I am, that I deserve more. Here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Am I bitter because I feel that God has withheld some blessing from me that I think that I deserve? How do you answer that question in your heart? See, what Jesus is getting at is, I deserve better. Really? Do you want what you deserve? Because the fact is, everything that we have apart from hell is God's grace. And, and, and a lot of times we may look at that and from our perspective, but God, but God I'm, you know, I'm serving you and I'm trying to do what's right. And, and, and why are bad things happening? You know, we assume that we deserve his blessings and we feel that God has wronged us in some way if bad things happen. There's a passage where Jesus speaks about this in Luke chapter 13. It's again, it's kind of a really unusual story where, um, you know, there's apparently a, a tower that had collapsed and killed 18 people. And it was news around that day and some people come and ask Jesus and they're basically asking, were those 18 people bad? Were they more wicked than everyone else that they were all killed at the same time? And Jesus' answer was basically, no, it's, and then he gives one of the most politically incorrect statements in the Bible. He says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. And basically what he's saying, you're asking why the tower fell on those 18 people. The question you ought to be asking is why didn't the tower fall on you? The fact of the matter is, is that all of us, I mean, if the tower fell on me, that's what I deserve. I, you know, if, if everything fell apart in my life, I couldn't, I couldn't complain at all. And the fact of the matter is, is that, is that what we tend to do is that we tend to say when something bad happens, God, why did you allow that bad thing to happen? How often do we say, God, why is the tower not falling on me today? 
Why, why did today did you give me breath? Why do you give me life? Why do you give me family? Why do you give me relationships? Why do I have a job? Why do I have all these things that I don't deserve? They're all gift of God's grace. And I think that God gave me an event that, uh, that helped me maybe have a unique perspective on this. When I was 19, I was involved in a very bad accident that almost killed me. I mean, it came that close away from killing me. And I know that. And, uh, and I could have looked at that time and, and said, you know, God, why did you allow that accident to happen? And, and w- what I felt God was teaching me is I realized I came that far away from dying. And one of the questions I had to ask, why did God let me live? Why did God give me life when he could have taken me like that? I, I should have died 40 years ago. And then now I look at life and I'm saying, everything, every day that I've had, every relationship that I've had in those 40 years since, I don't deserve any of those. Everyone is a gift of God. And if, and if everything was taken away tomorrow, man, I am amazingly blessed by his grace. All these things that I didn't deserve. And if I remember that, it helps protect me from the bitterness that I can feel when things don't go well. So that's one sign. A second sign and symptom of, of, of having this relation to God that at least in part in contractual terms is that we can have jealousy or resentment. And then those two are actually two sides of the same coin. So jealousy is when I'm mad that I don't have something. Resentment is when I'm mad that somebody else has something that I don't have. And so there are two sides. And the question we have to ask ourselves in self-evaluation is, am I jealous of good things that other people have and that I want? Or do I resent others for the blessings that they have? And we have to ask that. And what you see here in the story is these workers, these worked all day, well, they're jealous. You know, how they got paid more? I'm resentful that, because I deserved more. And the fact of the matter is, how many times have we basically said, you know, why did they get that? Why, you know, they're, they're not obeying God. Why are they prospering? God, why are you letting bad things happen to me? You know, God, why, why are they able to have kids so quickly? And, and we're trying to obey you, and you're not letting us do that. Why, why am I the ones that have health problems and you know, they seem to have everything going right for them. God, why did they get the job? I, I deserve better. God, I'm doing things right. And we may not say that out loud, but it's what we are thinking. And what we need to remember is that, again, everything that we have is a gift of God. Every good thing that we have, and, and God promises that he's going to take care of us. And at there are times that we don't always understand, but we've got to look at it and say, and I've got to work against that jealousy. I've got to instead instead of seeing what I don't have, I've got to remember what I do have. The third sign or symptom of, of where we can do this in relationship to God is, is probably the most common, and that's when we feel anger at God. And um, it's probably the most common symptom of how we relate to God in contractual terms. And, and that being said, I, I know that there are people here today that you have, deep down, you have anger at God. And, and why is that? The question we have to ask ourselves is when I do I get angry when God doesn't answer my prayer in the way that I think he should? And, and there are many of us that we have that experience. You know, it's like, you know, you know God, I pray. I pray with a spirit of, of anticipation. The expectation basically saying, okay, God, I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to do this. Here's my need. And deep down, I expect you to answer, to do what I want you to do. And, uh, and, you know, if you don't, I start arguing, but God, I've gone to church and I've obeyed the rules and I'm doing what's right and I've tied my money. Or, you know, God, I, I have problems with my kids. God, I brought them to church and, and I've tried to do what's right. I've, I've, I've tried to be a good spouse. I've tried, to, I've tried to obey you in the things that I'm doing. And, and God, now I have this need and I'm praying to you and you're not answering. Meaning you are doing what I expect you to do. And after I've all I've done for you, how can you let me down and not do what you're supposed to do for me? 
Now you see that's a contractual attitude. It's basically saying, God, I've done, and so therefore I expect. I, I, you've, got to, you've got to deliver. And here we need to remember that God doesn't give us what we deserve, and we should be thankful for that. And God is gracious and gives us incredibly good things, but it doesn't mean that he gives us all the things that we, that we think we need. And, and the fact is, is that, okay, he's by grace, and, and even in that grace, we still come to him as a parent, and, and, and he does bless us. And, but also when we come to him as a parent, we realize that at times he's going to allow difficult things. He's going to allow us to be, be, you know, be disappointed. But there is, even in that, there's a purpose. It's not because we failed him in some way. It's not that he's somehow judging us, which is saying in Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, he doesn't condemn us. He doesn't punish us for those who have believers. So then when we come to him, why are we asking? See, part of it is we, we're asking sometimes with the wrong basis. We're coming and we're saying, God, I've obeyed you. I've done this. I've performed. And, and, and we're asking based on contract. And God says, no, it's all about grace. It's not based on here's what I've done. It's God, I don't deserve. Here's my need and I'm coming to you as a father and I'm asking you in grace. But part of that ask, asking is that you're, I not only trust that you're good and that you're loving, but also that you're knowledgeable and that you know things that I don't know and that you might have a plan in my life that I don't understand. And, and, and part of that is that God, you may even allow sometimes disappointment and pain because that's part of the process of you working for a good purpose. Because it says later in Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his good purpose. Do I really believe that? So there's a, these signs or symptoms. But let me come back and, and end up with one other thought. Is that, okay, well, this is maybe if my thinking is wrong, but how do I get my thinking right? How, how, do, I, how do I readjust and say, how do I, basically, how do I learn to trust God when I feel like it isn't fair, when it doesn't make sense? Again, we think about the parable. On the one hand, we have the first workers that were, had a contract. Here's a denarius. I'm going to perform. Here's what I'm going to get. And, and they were frustrated because it's like, okay, I'm performing. But you have the second group, which basically were hired, and they went out trusting the master's word at the end of the day that they would treat him well. That's the key. We're, we're called to be like the second group. Where we're called to focus on the character of God to focus on his character. Now, now, even if we think about this parable, and you know, it didn't happen, but if you think about the characters in the parable, um, do you think that some of them could have been, the guys that were hired at, at three o'clock or five o'clock, they could have, you know, hey, this master could really stiff us. We don't have any guarantee. He could pay us nothing. He could just pay us a penny. He can, is that possible? Yeah, but why did they go out and work? Because they believed the character of the master. They knew something of his reputation that they said, okay, we believe he's going to take care of us. We believe that he's going to be trustworthy. Now, what does that mean towards us? How do we focus on the character of God? Well, first of all, we need to focus and remember on his promises. Remember what he promises. Remember what he tells us in his word. Remember that if you're a follower of Christ, you're his child, that he's adopted you, he loves you, he relates to you as his child. It talks about Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, that God, you know, if a sparrow falls to the ground, he knows that. Do you think he knows if anything's happened to you? He knows the number of hairs on your head. He said, well, big deal. Yes, yeah, for me, for some people, it's not a big deal. But for some of y'all, it is. And, and the whole idea is that there's nothing that is more complicated, more, you know, just meaningless information than the number of hairs on your head. And if God knows that, do you think that he knows your real needs? Do you think he's concerned about those things? That's his character. That's his promises. He loves you that much. And not only that, but we're told that, 
in the fallen world, yes, we're going because we're in the fallen world, we're going to have experience sin, we're going to experience pain, we're going to experience death. We're gonna, that's part of our reality. We're going to have wrong things done to us. God will allow that, but He will only allow it when He when He has a good purpose. That's what we saw a moment ago in Romans eight twenty eight. We know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That even the hard things, God has a purpose. If we trust him, we'll remember that and that will carry us through those times that we don't understand. Not only do we need to remember his promises, we need to remember his gracious love. We need to remember what he's done for us, how he's shown his love towards us. Remember how much God has loved you. That he didn't treat us as we deserve. But what does it say in Romans 5? Why we were sinners, why we were his enemies, Christ died for us. He reached out and he died for us. He gave, he took our punishment. What greater expression of love could we ever have than Jesus dying on the cross? And if you understand how much he has loved you, if you reflect upon what he has done to, to show his love, do you think you can trust him? Look what it says in Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If Jesus is really for you, what do you have to fear? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, who, who paid this ultimate price to win into, to buy us into relationship with him, to adopt us. He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave us for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now that you're his child, anything else he gives you is free. Do you think he's trustworthy? But then the challenge is how do we remember this? When we're in the middle of the hard time, when we're in the middle of the disappointment, when we're in the middle of the confusion, how do we remember these things? Well, then we need to choose to worship. And, and when we think about worship, worship is basically saying there's going to be times that we're overwhelmed where life doesn't make sense and worship is choosing to focus on the character and the promises and the faithfulness of God. It, it, that's when you look at the message of the Psalms. The Psalms are all about that. You have somebody, the psalmist is struggling and saying, God, here's where I am, I spread my struggle, but I choose to focus on you. I choose to worship. And when we study the Psalms, you know, the principle that I've taken from the Psalms, a great re- thing to remember is you will be overwhelmed by your circumstances or you will be overwhelmed by God. You cannot be overwhelmed by both at the same time. It is natural to be overwhelmed by circumstances. And the heart, in the midst of hard times, that's what naturally do. We choose to be overwhelmed by God. That's what worship is. And the thing is, is if we choose to be overwhelmed by God, you cannot be overwhelmed by God in circumstances at the same time. So what are you going to choose to be overwhelmed by? And it's a battle. This is not easy. At times when it's, you know, when we, God doesn't make sense, it's not easy, but it's a battle that we fight for our own soul. And when we focus on God's character, suddenly what we find is, that helps us to be able to get through those times where it doesn't make sense, where life doesn't seem fair. Not only that, one other point that we see here in this thing is that we also need to remember that we're not at the end of the day. Let's go back to the parable. You know, the workers go out and, and they're hired and they're told, okay, work the end of the day and, and I'll take care of you. And, and the fact is, is they didn't know for sure what they were going to get paid until the end of the day. And we, many of, of us right now, we're in, you're in a state of life where you're going through things and it doesn't make sense. You know, I, I think about time in my own life. I, there are times it doesn't make sense and I'll try to argue with God and I'll tell him, God, this is the way things should work. Uh, he hasn't listened to me yet. You know, it's just, you know, just, you know, I'm frustrated. And in the short run, it can be frustrating because it doesn't make sense to me. It makes sense to God. God has a plan. 
And what I need to remember is that it may not look good, it may not make sense, but it might only be 5.30, eight days until six o'clock. And truth and time go hand in hand. God will work things out. For those of us who are especially a little older in the faith, how many times can you look back in life and you say, man, there was this time it made no sense. God wasn't there. And now you look back and you're like, oh, God was there the whole time. Oh, it's amazing the good that he brought out of that. Now, if that's always been true in our life, then it's still true going forward. It's true in whatever crisis you're in the midst now. That wait until six o'clock, wait until the end of the day. And some of that is gonna be that God is gonna, in the circumstances of your life, God's gonna show you, here's how I'm working that for good. But some of that is also remembering the end of the day is not only in the here and now, it's in eternity. Um, it's in the con- seeing life in the context of eternity. The, fa- the fact of the matter is sometimes we cry out, life's not fair, I mean, death shouldn't happen, disease shouldn't happen, death shouldn't happen. You know what? I was created for a world with no death. I was created for Eden. There's no death. My soul longs for that. And your soul longs for a place where there is no disease, where there's no brokenness. And the Bible even talks about that in Ecclesiastes. He has made everything beautiful in its time. There's goodness in this world. Also, he has put eternity in the, in, in the man's hearts so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We're in the middle of this and there's beauty, but there's also a call for eternity because there's brokenness. And we long for this place where there is no death, where there is no disease, where there is no brokenness. And, and here's the beautiful thing. As a follower of Christ, I know one day I get that. I know, I know the world that I long for, where everything works, I'm going to get that. One day I get heaven. The good news is one day I get heaven. The bad news is I don't get heaven until I get heaven. And part of the reality is to say, in the middle of this, I'm going to wait for God to work. As we just sang in that one song, we wait for him. So we need to wait. But part of that waiting is also looking and saying, okay, God, you're going to work it out in here and now. And what you don't work out in here and now, you're going to work out in eternity. And the things that I long for, the brokenness that I, that I, man, I'm struggling with. God, I pray that you just help me to, help me to believe. And, and the things that, you know, that, that, that should be better, God, help me to realize that I don't need everything to work perfectly in this life because all those deepest desires are going to be fulfilled. I get heaven one day. And that's the promise. He calls us to trust him. He is good. He is loving. That's his character. But we also need to realize that sometimes his goodness and his generosity isn't evident in the middle of the day. And so as we're in the middle of the day, what we need to realize is stay faithful. Don't lose hope. Don't give up. Continue to be faithful. Stay out in the vineyard. Realize that the end of the day is coming. And because of his character, he's going to take care of us. When he says, I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to bless you, he will. You trust him. In the midst of that, we're going to struggle. And it's okay. And just talking with people at the end of their service where people are going to come back and say, yeah, but God, why are you? That's okay. God invites us. Jesus is inviting us to this struggle. You're not alone. If you're here today, you're not alone. And Jesus says, okay, this is what we struggle, but there is an answer that carries us through even those times when we cry out before God. It isn't fair. I'm glad it's not fair, but God is good. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.